Hello and welcome to this mini Love Your Library podcast, where I'm talking to BBC technology guru Rory Kethlin-Jones about his new book, Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era, which captures his experiences and reflections on the relentless ascent of technology over the last 15 years. Rory has met and interviewed visionaries like Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Bill Gates and Tim Berners-Lee. And he was in the room where it happened when Steve Jobs revealed the first iPhone, famously announcing, we're going to make some history here. In this conversation, Rory talks about the positive impact of technology, as well as the darker side of fake news, toxic social media, and the potential threat and benefits of artificial intelligence. The interview starts with Rory reading from the prologue of his new book. The health crisis has magnified both the positive and negative sides of smartphones and social media, bringing people together and offering ways of tracking and perhaps even stopping the virus in its tracks, but also dividing us with an infodemic of misinformation spreading at lightning speed around the globe. It has also enabled me to start reflecting on what I have learned during my years as a technology correspondent, a job where the day-to-day business of chasing stories and competing for airtime leaves little time for long-term thinking. I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s, a time when technology was exciting but distant and impersonal. It was a period of extraordinary advances, when men walked on the moon and Concorde ferried passengers at supersonic speed from London to New York, leaving Heathrow at 9.30 and arriving an hour earlier, in time for a second breakfast. But although I watched the Apollo 11 moon landing on the tiny black-and-white portable TV in our London flat and marvelled at the futuristic ideas on tomorrow's world, plastic grass, a robot receptionist, I was confident that I was never going to fly to the moon or have a robot in my home. The solitary computer at my school filled a room in the science block and could only be approached by boys wearing white coats and studying for physics A-level, which did not include me it seemed unlikely that I would ever own one. Yet, by 2020, just about everyone was carrying around a computer with far more muscle than that giant cabinet at school, or indeed those that had guided Apollo 11 down onto the moon. Technology had become personal, and the combination of smartphones with social media platforms was driving huge changes, both exciting and frightening, in the way we lived. And as someone with no greater scientific qualification than a barely scraped pass in physics O-level, I have been lucky enough to have a ringside seat as this revolution unfolded. It all started one day in January 2007, when a man in a black polo neck came on stage in San Francisco to tell us about something he had been cooking up. Thank you very much for coming onto our podcast. So your new book, Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era, is, as you've described it, your ringside seat account of the extraordinary way technology has, in less than 20 years, revolutionised the way we live. So could you start by telling us how you came to write it and what it's all about? Well, I came to write it because a publisher came to me a couple of years ago to, to ask me to think about such a book and I he said I'm sure you've got a book in you what is it and I 
thought long and hard and realised that I had become BBC technology correspondent after having dabbled in the subject for quite a long while, but getting the official job in January 2007. And the first big event I covered, and I was there in the in the hall, was when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone, which effectively started this smartphone era. And when you think, in the space of three years, an awful lot happened. So in 2004, Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook. In 2005, YouTube was created. In 2006, Twitter came along. And then in 2007, we got that extraordinary event where Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. Uh, And what you then very quickly had was a combination of these new smartphones, because the iPhone wasn't the first smartphone, but it launched a whole wave of them, and these very powerful new networks. And we went from an era where your computing was done tapping away on a desk or at work or maybe in the back room at home to your computing was done everywhere. You were connecting everywhere on the move. And that brought in enormous changes. And that's what the book is about, uh, that combination. And also the other thing it's about is a kind of journey between hope and fear. So the first section is how wonderful and exciting all this was, this rapid change. Uh, The second section is, oh, my goodness, what have we done to ourselves? When we look at the the abuse online, the the uh, the uh, impact of social media on things like elections, the spreading of misinformation, and so on, uh, and then it all comes together in a final section, which deals with the pandemic, which happened during the writing of the book, which somehow brings out both the positive and the negative sides of this technology. As you said, in the first section, it it talks about this the rise of this smartphone social media era. But then, like all seismic changes to our lives, are all these then, as you say, these unintended consequences, like how social media has stolen our time, the fake news and the kind of toxic nature of much social media interaction. Do you think there is a turning point when people started questioning whether this new technology was only a power for good? Well, I put the high point of of this era, the, the hopefulness, at the London 2012 Olympics opening ceremony, because I see a lot of the sort of change in mood through the eyes of Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the, the, the creator of the World Wide Web, who I talk to a lot. And uh, there's a chapter really reflecting on his darkening view. And Sir Tim Berners-Lee, if you remember, at the London Olympics opening ceremony, tapped out this message, this is for everyone, which seemed to sum- summarise how wonderful and democratising this technology was. And don't forget, we just had the Arab Spring, which people put down at the time, partly to social media and giving people the power to communicate without the intermediation of giant media companies or governments. Um, and I think people were then you know, quite slow in general to to wake up to the negative sides. Um, but what a lot of people mentioned to me, including Tim Berners-Lee, is the wake-up call being the Cambridge Analytica affair, when we realised what the business model of some of these companies was, i.e. chewing through vast amounts of our data, selling us advertising, manipulating us in ways which we just didn't really suspect. And our eyes began to open to that. So I, th- I think that was a, that was a pretty important moment. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see what the attitude of those big companies were 
when the Cambridge Analytica scandal happened that they seemed maybe a bit naive or were they just being a bit arrogant? Um, I think arrogant is a good word. I mean, it's kind of summed up, I mean, in, in Facebook's motto at one stage, move fast and break things. I mean, it's kind of naked capitalism. The, the, the whole point was to grow as quickly as possible and actually not worry too much about money or about what went wrong in the, in the meantime. They they didn't, you know, zero in on revenues at first. That was, it was build it and they will come. As long as you amass a huge crowd and chew up their attention time, get it, getting their attention, then eventually you will have an incredibly powerful business. And it proved to be right. Mark Zuckerberg, who resisted lots of attempts to buy his company, said, I'm going to go on growing it, uh, triumphed in the end. But he then proved incredibly insensitive at first to the charges that this company was, you know, not a force for good. Yeah, no, I think I've heard you talk about the fact that it comes from all these founders are a little bit kind of hippie, a little bit alternative. They see themselves as the good guys. We couldn't possibly be doing anything wrong, but uh, that isn't necessarily the case. It's that Californian vibe where, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, um, let's all chill out. And we are, yeah, we're on a a mission. Yeah, we're going to earn a lot of money and become incredibly rich, but we're going to change the world for the better. And as you've said, the last section of the book deals with a topic I guess you, you weren't really expecting to be dealing with when you started writing the coronavirus epidemic. And it is really sobering to consider, as you do in the book, what our lives would have been like had the pandemic hit us 20 years earlier when we didn't have smartphones, Wi-Fi and social media. But as you've as you've mentioned, you also look at the the negative impact technology has had on us in the last year and a half we've been dealing with the virus. Could you tell us a bit more about sort of both sides of that perspective? Yeah, I mean, when I set off to write the book, the last part was going to be about health. It was about my health, which uh, is is a sort of strand running through it, and I was going to explore ways in which technology could could help me in various healthcare battles. And then this came along and it was a global healthcare battle. Um, so the the positive side is obviously the way society was able to cope with lockdown. You know, it wasn't enjoyable, but think of how much worse it would have been trying to try to work, trying to school your kids without those communications technologies. I've just done an interview today with the president of Estonia, which is the world's most digital nation. And she said, you know, they were already doing all these things long before the pandemic came along. You know, they had a great sort of way of uh, putting schooling online. People were used to using those tools. Um, uh, And here in the UK, we, we, we managed pretty well. Although it's important to remember that a minority of people did not manage at all well. It widened inequalities. So that was the positive side uh, of the whole thing. And, and, and also there, there is a chapter in the book about uh, the hope that a smartphone app in the form of the contact tracing app could also make a difference. The negative side was the fact that this infrastructure that we've all become used to was used to spread misinformation about uh, vaccines, about the nature of the coronavirus, uh, conspiracy theories that it was linked to 5G uh, and so on. And, you know, rumbling in the background is what was happening in the United States, where um, there was a battle over the nature of truth because 
platforms like Facebook were, were used to spread lies, frankly. Now, you talk in the book about us maybe being a bit less naive nowadays when we develop and use new technologies compared with the, the heady days of the first four or five years after the iPhone was launched. Um, you, you kind of mentioned the way that young people are now maybe a bit more guarded about how much they share and how much they keep private. And also the way Facebook has had to set up its, uh, its oversight board to, uh, to make moderation judgments. Uh, and you also talk about the way we're looking at ethics to do with, say, artificial intelligence before we let it take over our lives. Do you think we are taking back control or do you think advances in technology are this like this unstoppable wave that we really can't do much about? It's going to happen whether or not we, we accept it or not. Well, I think both, really. I mean, the, the interesting thing about AI is um, we're still at quite an early stage. Although there have been very exciting advances, and I've got in the book Stephen Hawking in an interview with me warning that AI could mean the end of humanity, make us all obsolete. Uh, I think most people who are even at the cutting edge of AI still think we're a very long way away from that kind of general intelligence, a machine that could do everything. Um, but what we've we've begun to think of quite early in the, that that process uh, about the ethics of it. So sometimes I think there are more AI ethics think tanks than AI think tanks. There's a conference a day on on the ethics of AI. So which is a good thing. Um, and the, these people who maybe in the past have just charged into what they do without much thought of being uh, held to account. So I think that is a healthy process. I love the way that all these uh, philosophy graduates are getting jobs in uh, high-tech companies and in a way that they might never yes. have got a job before. The whole idea of issues of uh, privacy are really complicated and they have their own unintended consequences, of course. Now, as you've mentioned that towards the end of the book, you give this really interesting account of the attempt that was made in this country to use technology apps uh, in COVID-19 track and tracing and how different the results were, the success was in this country compared with, say, South Korea, because we've got really careful privacy rules. Um, do you think we maybe we should have been a bit more flexible about privacy? Well, what I th what I felt was that the debate was a bit one sided. When this app was starting through development, there was a, a huge outcry from privacy campaigners, uh, perhaps rightly, that we didn't want the government collecting through their, our phones all this intimate data on us, and there that stopped the development of what was called a centralised app in favour of an app on a platform developed by Apple and Google, a decentralised version, which basically didn't put much data at all in the hands of the government. And it struck me that the, the debate was all a bit one-sided because the alternative... Uh, well, what, what we're hearing about was a theoretical danger to people, a theoretical harm, that their data might be used in some unspecified way... Um, some intrusive way by the government. Whereas actually people were facing a real harm, a real threat to their civil liberties. They were being effectively locked up at home. They weren't being allowed out. And, and sometimes the very same, the funny thing that struck me was the very same people who were saying, oh, our, our apps must be really, really private, were saying, look at what South Korea's done. Why can't we be more like them without realising that what South Korea had done was not really use a, a Bluetooth contact tracing app, but but use mass surveillance, collect vast amounts of data, 
some of it published on websites where you could say Citizen A went from this hotel to this restaurant to this office. Uh, and with a bit of detective work, you could probably have worked out who Citizen A was. But that, that approach seemed to work. Now, culturally, that would never have flown in this country, obviously. But it, it, it struck me as a bit weird that we didn't have the debate about it. We've talked briefly about uh, artificial uh, intelligence, and it is a topic which you talk about quite a bit in the book, talking to people like Elon Musk and also the founder of the organisation DeepMind, which I was very interested in. And as you've said, I kind of sense, yeah, AI is really just at the start of having a significant effect on our lives. Um, Would you mind talking a little bit about DeepMind and its project back in 2016 when it was attempting to beat the world champion in this ancient game of Go? Well, it, it's a fascinating company, um, and its founder, Demis Asabis, is the most interesting man in Britain in many ways. Got the perfect background for this. He was uh, a junior chess champion, um, very brilliant, uh, did also a PhD in neuroscience, uh, as well as uh, undergraduate degrees in computer science, uh, and also obsessed with games and sees games as the kind of heart of what he does, because games are a kind of sandpit where you can model human behaviour in the way that um, AI techniques sometimes try to do. Uh, And he founded this company, DeepMind, and managed to get uh, a secretive billionaire, he won't name, but I think it's Peter Thiel, to give him enough money to, to have a go. And spent three or four years not getting anywhere and their first mission his team was to beat some computer games some very simple computer games kind of space invaders type pong a very simple computer game and they managed to do that and then soon afterwards they were bought by google which was a kind of shock to people in the ai community because they said who is this company we've never heard of and suddenly google had, had bought this british business and then then set off what on what was seen as the biggest challenge in AI, uh, beating the incredibly complex game of Go, which has got so many potential moves, although it looks simple, it's got so many potential moves, that you couldn't beat it by what's called brute force. Uh, So famously in the late 90s, chess was beaten, chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov was beaten by an IBM computer, which was effectively just calculating every single possible move. That was impossible with with Go. So what they had to do, the deep mind scientists, is effectively teach the machine to play Go and get it to play itself millions of times until it learned the best techniques. Uh, And then they did that and won and beat this Go grandmaster, which nobody expected to happen. And then they did it again in an even more outstanding way, uh, uh, astonishing way where they didn't even give the, the, the computer much data. They gave effectively the rules of the game and again set it to obsessively play itself. They didn't, as they had previously, give it the data of thousands and thousands of past games. They gave it very little data, but their algorithms were so smart that again, it learned very quickly to beat the best players in the world. It's amazing. And that shows that it's working things out for itself rather than 
just getting data fed into it. It's teaching itself, yeah. which yeah. is yeah, extraordinary. Now, you've mentioned Peter Thiel there. Um, he is the PayPal founder, and he's talked about... Um, the way we perhaps disappointed with what technology has done is that in that we wanted to, technology to bring us flying cars and it's brought us 140 characters. Yes, it's a great it's a great quote. Yeah, so it's it, because at some some stage I sort of sit back and say it was an amazing revolution, but you know compared with when I was growing up and we were landing on the moon and flying across the Atlantic in in under four hours. In some ways, things have gone backwards. The big, big visions, you know, it's taking us forever to build a high-speed railway line. But software is advancing very rapidly. And I use that, I use that quote really to sort of introduce Elon Musk, who, who was the guy who was thinking about flying cars, who was thinking big. But, but the paradox of Elon Musk is that he was also, well, he continues to be completely obsessed by tweeting uh, in the most trivial and kind of slightly juvenile way. So it is a huge paradox. And, and has to be physically stopped from doing it, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I, I was all, yeah, I, I noticed that he also, Peter Thiel also said that um, that the computing power on our mobile phones, it like far outstrips what was available at the time of the moon landings. And yet we're just using it to send pictures of our cats to people on the other side of the world. Um, yes. And do you, is it a frustration to you that we're not, that we're using technology for such superficial nonsense? Um, wouldn't it be so much better if we were directing it to worthwhile things like medical research? Uh, I, I think we've always used technology for we call it superficial nonsense. I think that's to undervalue communication because a lot communication and creativity. Um, it's easy to laugh at, you know, TikTok and Instagram and whatever. Um, but when when I was growing up, uh, parents used to say, "Why don't you switch off the telly and do something useful instead?" Uh, and television was a very passive medium. It wasn't at all interactive. At least this medium is very interactive, can be very creative. So there are positive sides of it. And of course, we are using the technology for all sorts of very positive things. And we're, we're using it, we're, we hope to use it to combat climate change. We're using it, uh, I mean, the big one of the big hopes of artificial intelligence is that it will uh, cut the time it takes to produce new drugs. Drug discovery is the term. So there are serious sides to it. I mean, with any technology, uh, it's used by all, all sorts of people for all sorts of things. People who hear you on the TV and the radio and on your podcast might be surprised to know that you didn't start off as a scientist or a computer specialist. In fact, am I right in saying that you originally studied modern and ancient languages? Uh, yeah, medieval and modern languages at Cambridge University, yes. French, French and German. Do you think your perspective as an enthusiastic and intrigued user rather than as an expert engineer, do you think that's one of the things that makes you good at explaining very complex technology in easy to understand sort of bite-sized chunks of media time? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I, I've always had a bit of an inferiority complex and kind of look up to scientists and get angry when people don't revere science or or revere bogus science so the whole kind of anti-vax movement and a lot of nonsense about uh the effects of 5g really makes me cross so yes i mean i 
it's been a steep learning curve for me and you know my my critics would say i'm still still on the baby slopes but as a specialist but someone trying to reach a very broad audience i think it is an advantage to 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 have to make that leap of understanding myself and therefore maybe to be better at explaining it to a wide audience <laughs>